engaged in our Dartmouth community around global issues. So thank you for what you're doing and tell us what you're up to today. Thanks a lot, Rich. Uh, because of the time, I'll probably go a little quicker than, than usual. But um, you know, I think this is a time when our hearts are a little heavy between ISIL and Ebola. It's pretty much a, a time where uh, I think it's going to—it's so important that everyone works together and thinks more globally about things. Before I even start, I want to thank uh, two colleagues that don't get a lot of mention often: Ray Kulig and Fred Glazer um, from the telehealth office, and also from our video conferencing center. They, they've been immensely helpful over the years in making all this stuff possible. Um, I, one of the purposes of today's uh, talk is to really highlight the fact that you know, we have uh, all these international medical graduates here. And I think um, we don't really tap into them as much as we can. I think it's a missed opportunity at times. I think um, we can learn together from them about healthcare systems, uh, about costs in healthcare systems. Just a few things you'll hear this morning are that you can go to medical school for $1,000. Um, uh, you can you can transplant a kidney for $5,000, and you can actually agree to have a universal health care system in places like Ghana. Uh, opportunities uh, also are there to engage, I think, um, more broadly in the community. By I mean, these people could go, these folks could go and talk at the medical school. They could meet students, and that's why I called it right under your nose. These are these uh, we often have discussions in the office about things, and we've learned a lot from our fellows over the years. Um, I also think there's an opportunity for training programs. It turns out there's a small loophole I, that, that you can actually train international graduates without having them do a three-year uh, residency. And, and maybe we could imagine dedicating 5% of US slots to that with the sole purpose of training people to go back to their country and, 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 and function uh, in different specialties. Um, last week, we had uh, three visitors from Haiti here. And I, I think uh, some will be online this morning, Graciela Cadet who's going to run their ICU at uh, Mirabelle and hope, hopefully will start in, uh, uh, in February. We had Suzette Joseph, who runs their medical ward of 36 beds, the HIV TB ward, and also is going to be the first dialysis nurse. And then we had a, a young resident, uh, Marilyn um, uh, Menager, who is going to be really the first nephrology fellow, although they don't have fellows in Haiti. Um, this morning's speakers are our are, are fellows. Um, Bupesh, um, Bupesh Kadka is actually in Nepal. And so over the weekend, I did like six video things. And Fred helped me edit something. He won't be here live. He's going to try to get in live, although they had a scheduled power outage. Um, so uh, we'll see that. Daniel Castro, who is from El, El Salvador, is going to go uh, next. Uh, Nick Korshi is here from Ghana. He's going to go after that. And then Miriam um, Gull, who's here from Pakistan, will, will present. And the idea is. The, the current, uh, this zero by 25 is the idea that no one should die from acute kidney injury in any country by the year 2025. And that's uh, why I asked them all to speak about the state of nephrology in their, in their own country, the training programs, and, and, and what the current state of dialysis is. I just wanted to um, provide a little background. You know, dialysis is clearly linked to economics and per capita income. And if you look on the left, um, people don't, don't look for the disease, don't, incidence prevalence are low in countries. You know, like India, and obviously there are countries even less, uh, uh, more impoverished, and there's there's less uh, less dialysis. And, and in Haiti, for instance, there's no there's no registry. No one knows what the instance of ESRD is. Or, or um. I also want to point out that you know we're in this system where we're trying to think about how to redesign healthcare. Even in countries that are in the middle of the road, like South Africa, they have very strict criteria. So imagine practicing with this. Here's the category of patients who can have dialysis. 
Category one, you can definitely have it. Category two, only if resources allow. And category three are patients who are completely excluded. Here's the list of diseases uh, for which you're excluded. So if you're not transplantable, you can't have dialysis. If you have AIDS or HIV, if you're over 60, if you're a substance abuser, if you're morbidly obese, which they define as greater than 35 BMI, which I would challenge you to think about the patients you see in the office. If you have diabetes and you're over 50, you can't have dialysis. And there's an, uh, other diseases. And if you're mentally unstable or if you don't listen to your doctor. So um, people have faced the issue of uremia and all these young uh, folks have faced it in their country, and the folks in Haiti are facing this. Um, you know, uh, how do you take someone like this who's on the bridge of dying, and, 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 and what do you do if you're faced with that? Um, the first dialysis was done at the Brigham with a kidney that looked like this, a rotating drone kidney. Uh, Dr. Merrill in the middle was the only person in this team of transplant people with the first transplant set of twins here who didn't win the Nobel Prize, but he was very astute. He said, he distinguished between acute and chronic. So we're thinking about providing acute dialysis in Haiti, uh, it, and it could happen in the next few days. But the problem is if you don't pick the patients right. So what, what, what Merrill said was the ability to restore a convulsing comatose patient with, with irreversible chronic renal failure to a state of well-being and good appetite is an accomplishment which must not be unwisely utilized. False hopes engendered in the minds of the patient and family by this phenomenon are all the more tragic when the signs and symptoms begin to recur within a matter of days. That's after stopping dialysis again. The decision to employ chronic uh, dialysis, chronic renal failure, is not one lightly to be arrived at, and you have to understand the physiologic and sociologic implications. That's on the burden of the young folks in Haiti right now to start dialysis. They don't pick the right patients. You may not know, but in 1962, we had life and death committees in Seattle and around the country to choose patients. It was done by um, a group of people who decided whether you were worthy of dialysis. And uh, people were outraged by that. That came out in Life magazine. There were things on TV. And then we decided that we would pass a law that everyone could have dialysis and transplant in this country. It's the only universal health care that's available. There's a form called 2728. We signed that form, and you, you qualify for Medicare. Uh, most, so, so we have already done the experiment of universal health care. Um, by signing that law, uh, the, the issue is the cost. So in the Medicare program, our patients account for about 1% of the population, and we, and we use about 8% of the budget. So that's the cost of ESRD. We have this collaboration with Haiti, which was phenomenal. Um, and there are many people, um, um, uh, Peter Wright, um, uh, Alice Werbel, and I'm going to forget people, but basically there are many people still doing many good things in Haiti, and, and also many other global health uh, initiatives around. This was my exposure to Haiti. This is the first patient ever dialyzed on the Central Plateau with one of the machines from our ICU. This woman survived. Um, and, and this was really what was a, a very moving event for me and, for, and, and motivated me to keep going. Um, so uh, what the current state of affairs in Haiti are that uh, there's a huge instance of hypertension. They eat grams and grams of salt. Um, it's also something probably genetic. There's a huge uh, incidence of diabetes, although it's a lean population. Um, it has the highest incidence of stroke in the world. The prevalence and incidence of kidney, acute kidney injury and chronic are unknown. There's only four nephrologists, one of whom is the chief of medicine at Mirabalay uh, uh, for 10 million people. They have 14 dialysis machines in the country. Only six are public in Port-au-Prince. And uh, for those machines, you have, to pay, you have to go to the pharmacy and buy $50 worth of supplies to be dialyzed. Over the past year, we had a young woman who we were asked to try to help. That young woman passed away because she couldn't afford the supplies. 
if you have, obviously, rich people always make out okay. So if you're baby doc, you can allies for $300, $1,000 a week and survive. <coughs> Mirabalay is this wonderful, beautiful oasis that's been built there with uh, the idea of providing trainees, helping with the brain drain, and they need support. Uh, they need um, uh, support uh, from the education point of view, also from the technical point of view, and that's what we're trying to do. We're hoping that we can do the first dialysis. This, we're set to go. And the goal is also to do transplantation by 2017. Here's the group that was here last week. We were in the simulation lab. Um, that's Graciela on the left, Marilyn, and Cezette. And we were practicing putting in central lines. Um, they had the opportunity to go to the OR just serendipitously and see a living-related transplant. And um, that's stuck. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, I didn't know we were playing with some technology that's Google Glass. Uh, I'll play a little bit of this, but we're behind time. Uh, actually, we're, we're not too bad. Okay. So, this is this uh, just to show you a little technology. Bupesh was in Nepal. We tried to connect by, he's on an iPad in his house in Nepal talking to us. Uh, we tried it four times. The video was too much for it. And so finally, I just said, turn off your video, turn off my video. I was running the slides from my kitchen. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hamilton, and Department of Medicine for giving me this opportunity for information about uh, Nepal in Nepal. Next slide. To audience, all of us have uh, a slide of this group here. Uh, we are showing the location of Nepal. It's uh, in Asia, in between. Uh, and China. Next slide. As uh, most of you may know, Nepal is a mountainous country uh, and uh, we have a lot of peaks uh, um, uh, in the Himalayas uh, in Nepal. And here is a photo of Mount Everest that I took uh, two years back uh, on a mountain flight. Next slide. Briefly about uh, Nepal, it's a small country, a mountainous country, uh, just about uh, less than 57,000 square miles. Uh, population is uh, uh, about 28 million, uh, and uh, per capita income of Nepalese uh, people are, is about $730 uh, a year, according to the World Bank data from 2013. Um, and as far as the overall healthcare of Nepalese people is uh, quite poor, um, there are uh, private, public, and uh, government institutions. Uh, thank you, Dr. Remillard and Department of Medicine for giving me the opportunity to talk about uh, in Nepal. Next slide. To audience, all of us, I have uh, a slide of this group here. Uh, where I showed them the location of Nepal is Nepal, uh, and uh, even on the private medical colleges, uh, there are uh, certain quotas for government-sponsored scholarship seats, and uh, on their basis, uh, candidates are are uh, um, are able to go into uh, into the medical colleges uh, scholarship. Um, so that they can uh, do their medication. But the 
majority of seats uh, in uh, in uh, in the private medical colleges are uh, are they uh, uh, take capitation fees and uh, uh, and it's, it's uh, quite possible somewhere around uh, about uh, forty thousand US dollars would be the ballpark figure for the capitation uh, fees that those can receive. Uh, now, uh, from, I want to focus on uh, the silver system in Nepal. Uh, to start with, uh, this data uh, I, uh, I obtained from um, people practicing, the Nepalists practicing in, in uh, according to them, the incidence of renal failure requiring renal replacement therapy is about uh, 2,700 to 3,000 patients per year. Um, and because all the services uh, are, uh, are uh, uh, should be, are, are through uh, patients' own uh, money or they have to pay out of pocket, uh, costs are, are really a big, big issue. Uh, cost for hemodialysis for mass testing is about uh, maybe three thousand to four thousand, uh, which comes around thirty to forty uh, US dollars. Uh, apart from hemodialysis, there are only two uh, hospitals in the capital of Kathmandu who perform peritoneal uh, dialysis, and peritoneal uh, uh, dialysis has not taken off as as uh, it should uh, in, in the body. Um, Nepal recently uh, started uh, the renal transplant uh, from 2008, and so far there are three centers in Kathmandu who perform renal transplants. All of these renal transplants are living donor transplants. So far, we do not have uh, disease donor uh, regulations to, to start uh, donor transplantation. About uh, close to about 500. Um, this is estimate of people who have had renal transplants, and it's about 500, 450,000. Uh, uh, the initial cost of uh, renal transplant in Nepal is close to about uh, 500 to 700,000 rupees, which comes around uh, US dollars, 5 to uh, 7,000. Um, as we're talking about the, the costs here, um, um, I also want to put this uh, data about renal biopsy and its cost, which is about 750 US dollars. Um, because of financial uh, reasons and also not having a great uh, renal pathology um, uh, services, uh, the renal, renal biopsies are not as uh, often, um, not, not often. So I'm going to uh, just move on because I think um, it, it, we got started a little late, but basically what Bupesh goes on to say is that uh, there is no treatment, uh, there's no payment for acute kidney injury, and in general it's a, it's a death sentence in, in Nepal. So, so I think um, it's interesting because they're able to develop a renal transplant program, they're doing this, and uh, that, that's been partly a private effort. Um, uh, and, and actually, we have trained three fellows. We've trained the most Nepalese nephrologists, uh, uh, Prajwal um, uh, and, and Bupesh. And, um, that's, uh, blanking. But anyway, so, so I'm going to give the floor over to Daniel Castro from El Salvador.
Good morning. As Dr. Remin Armesh and I am from El Salvador, so I will speak briefly about the current state of renal disease in El Salvador, the region, and its border. Uh, oh. the, this picture is from a recent article from one of the journals of American Society of Nephrology, and it was called uh, The Central American Epidemic of Chronic Kidney Disease. Uh, that is a sugarcane field, and I will come back to it in a couple of minutes to mention why it's relevant to the topic. So in the world, there are some especially clusters, uh, especially clusters CKD. There are some endemic nephropathies like Balkan nephropathy in southeastern uh, Europe and uh, some endemic nephropathy in Sri Lanka. And in the past couple of years, there has been recognition and international interest in the high rates of NSAID-renal disease in Central America. Uh, Salvador is that little country in the middle. It's basically in between Mexico and Costa Rica. And those uh, highlighted areas represent the places in Central America that have been found to have very high rates of end-stage renal disease. Uh, there, ha there have been some studies uh, looking at uh, the end-stage renal disease in El Salvador and some other studies in Central America that have included patients from El Salvador. And they have found that the patients affected by this uh, usually work in agriculture, usually work in sugarcane fields. Uh, they work in low altitude. This being less than 100 meters above the sea level or 320 uh, feet above the sea level. The population affected usually are male. Um, surprisingly, the age groups affected are younger than the age groups usually that one may expect to see in a chronic condition. The risk factors um, like the traditional diabetes and hypertension that are seen in in richer countries. Comparing the data from El Salvador and USRDS, which is the national database that uh, distributes the information from uh, ESRD in the United States, we can see that diabetic nephropathy and hypertension are more than 60% of the causes of end-stage renal disease here, whereas in El Salvador and neighboring countries, uh, they are about 20% only. But the unknown etiology of, of the, the end-stage renal disease in the region is pretty high. It's almost 70%. And this is similar in, 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 the, in other countries, as I mentioned. And this is what's been called Mesoamerican nephropathy, which was a term uh, named uh, a couple of years ago. With, there was an international workshop in Costa Rica with uh, people from, from different countries, including the United States, with some representatives from Tufts and Boston University, uh, as they are doing some research over there. Uh, the standardized mortality rate ratio in, the, in Central American countries that do report the cost of death, not all countries report the cost of death, but the ones that do report it, they compare to, to the country that has the lowest uh, mortality from end-stage renal disease in the region, uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean. Surprisingly, it is Cuba, so Cuba it is the control here. And we can see that El Salvador has the highest mortality rate, mostly males, as I mentioned, and it's up to 20 to 30% higher. Uh, the pictures I have in the next couple of slides are from a recent article from Science Magazine uh, that covered uh, this Mesoamerican nephropathy. The pictures included in the article showed who the victims of end-stage renal disease in the region are. As I mentioned uh, in the first slide, uh, the sugar cane fields. This is a sugar cane cutter uh, that, that is transport that's taking some of the sugar cane. Uh, Probably he has just gotten with his machete. The sugar cane is all born because they set it on fire prior to harvesting as it decreases the work labor. This is 
another uh, picture of the same thing, then they have to transport all the sugar cane to the trucks and then they take it to the place where it is processed. Uh, this is a picture of, um, of, a pro of a demonstration in Managua, the capital of Nicaragua, and these are former sugar cane cutters. Uh, they blame the pesticides that are used in the fields as they think that that is the cause of the high, high incidence of end-stage disease in the region. Um, there has been some research on it. That's the, I think that's the research that people from Boston University were doing there, but uh, that, was not, that was not confirmed. So, uh, real failure in El Salvador. There's only one, uh, there's only one referral hospital in, in El Salvador. It is a very small country, but the population is 6.2 million, and it is the highest density, it has the highest density population in, in, the, in the American continent. So there's only one, one referral center. That referral center is the only hospital that provides dialysis in the public health system. And it is a poor country, so there's very few people that could afford to go to a private infrastructure. So most people end up going to the public system. And such renal disease is the most common admission to the hospital, and it is the most common cause of death as well. There's no renal transplant problem. Nephrology in El Salvador. So there are only 32 nephrologists in the entire country. Most of them only work part-time in the public health system. One may think that uh, the reason why there are so few so specialists in, in, in the country is because there's not enough doctors, but that's not true. There's about six medical schools in the country, and there are about four to 500 new physicians every year, but there are very few uh, hospitals that, give, uh, that have residency programs or fellowship programs. Um, Less than 20% of the graduates are able to join a residency program. So uh, if a physician can leave the country and study elsewhere, uh, they do that. Uh, I'm included there. Rarely a physician that seeks graduate medical education elsewhere comes back to the country. So El has the highest mortality rate from ESRD in the world, with 50 to 60 deaths from 100,000 habitants. Uh, obviously, that's from the that's looking at the, at the countries that do report the, 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 the cause of the death. And it's the second leading cause of mortality among men of working age. So to put that in perspective, if a patient uh, has AKI in a community hospital and requires dialysis, they, one would think that he, that patient is transferred to, to this referral center and gets dialysis. But uh, I never saw a patient being transferred when I was a student there because there's simply no enough beds, no enough slots for dialysis, so the patients die in the community hospital. If they come to the to the this referral center, yeah, and I don't I'm not really sure how they choose uh, patients to, to do hemodialysis on, but they have very limited spots for hemodialysis. So most people uh, are uh, only get peritoneal dialysis. The problem is that the hospital does not have enough um, resources and they do not have the silastic type of catheters that we have for peritoneal dialysis, so they ask the patient to buy themselves. Patients are poor cannot buy it, so what happens a lot of times is that they have to come in with pulmonary edema or, or a very clear indication of dialysis and they get a, 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 a solid catheter, a, a rigid catheter placed, it's placed blindly, no ultrasounds, like a photosynthesis. Put blindly, they get peritoneal dialysis for a few days and discharge, they have to come back after a couple of days. And that's how, how they end up being treated. And as you can imagine, uh, they don't last very long. Thanks, Daniel.
Okay, and uh, next we've got Nick Barshi from Ghana. Good morning. Uh, my name is Nicholas Kwashi from Ghana. Um, as you can see, Ghana used to be called the Gold Coast. And uh, this name goes back uh, in the um, 15th to 16th century when the first uh, European missionaries arrived in the country. Uh, they could find uh, uh, pellets of gold after rain on the ground, uh, hence the name Gold Coast. It wasn't until um, the early uh, 19th to 20th century after independence that the name was changed to Ghana. Um, I train in Ghana. Uh, Ghana is uh, in uh, the western coast of Africa. It's bordered on the west uh, by Ivory Coast, on the north by uh, Burkina Faso, uh, the east by Togo, and then the south by uh, the Gulf of Guinea, which is part of the Atlantic Ocean. As you can all see, uh, Ghana is just a country away from uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, uh, where uh, the epicenter of uh, the current uh, epidemics, uh, Ebola, is. Uh, fortunately, uh, Ghana has not recorded any case of Ebola yet. Um, before um, the arrival of the missionaries, uh, the traditional African um, you know, understood health to be a combination of uh, spiritual well-being and uh, uh, physical well-being. Uh, so they had uh, traditional healers and um, clerics who usually administered um, health care. They did that by uh, administration of uh, uh, herbs. And um, this also included uh, traditional priests and priestesses who took, who took care of the spiritual aspect. Um, the early um, introduction of Western or Orthodox medicine uh, started way, way in the uh, 19th century. Uh, where, when the uh, first Orthodox medical center was set up in the capital uh, by the Europeans. Uh, this um, went on to uh, carry the burden of all the population. Um, initially, there were difficulties in accepting it because the people still believed in what they held to, to be uh, the right way of healing. Um, we still have such difficulties in the country. Uh, but thank goodness, uh, now we have about three tertiary uh, institutions uh, that developed from the first one that was um, uh, created in the early uh, 19th century. Um, Ghana has a universal uh, healthcare system, and uh, this is uh, provided by the government and uh, administered uh, by the Ministry of Health. Uh, there are five levels of uh, providers. Um, we have the health post. Uh, which is um, usually uh, the, uh, the primary uh, care provision uh, for the rural areas. We also have the health centers scattered around the country, district hospitals, regional hospitals, and then the tertiary centers. Uh, we currently have about uh, two prominent tertiary centers and uh, I think about two other um, centers that are affiliated to the early uh, centers. Uh, this is um, one of the uh, tertiary centers, Confanoche uh, uh, Teaching Hospital. It's in the hinterland, um, centrally placed in the country. 
Um, this is the first one that the Europeans built in the capital, Kolebu Teaching Hospital, and it's a major referral center in the country. Um, in terms of uh, medical education, um, again, medical education is free in the country, uh, free at least for uh, the citizens. And um, we, we enter into medical school straight from uh, secondary schools after you have had about uh, 16 to 17 years of education, starting from primary school, go to uh, uh, six years of primary school, four years of uh, middle school, and then you you um, sit for an exams and uh, and get into the secondary school, which will take you uh, about four four more years, and then you do another two years of uh, uh, advanced level course, um, write an examination, do a year of uh, a, a year of uh, national service, uh, after which you enter into the school in, into the school. Um, the school is admission is usually based on merit. Um, uh, as of the time of training, we had two medical schools uh, with about 7,000 applicants, uh, and uh, my medical school was taking only uh, 35 students uh, because of availability of uh, facilities for training. Um, so it's very, very competitive. Uh, others who could afford happen to find their way into Europe and to the America to train. Um, the, uh, the program for the medical school runs uh, a total of six years, uh, with the first three years being uh, uh, the basic medical sciences, after which you could be given um, a BSc Human Biology, uh, that, that, and then uh, you could also uh, continue to finish the MBCHB, which is uh, the Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of uh, Surgery degree, which is equivalent to the MD degree here. Um, uh, Post-medical school, you can uh, then do a one year of housemanship, which is modeled after the British system and is equivalent to um, internship here in America. Um, I must say that uh, the practice of medicine in Ghana is generally based. Um, this is because um, we do not have uh, uh, training uh, programs for uh, specialties and subspecialties. Um, as of the time of training, uh, the country depended so much on expatriate uh, specialists. And um, um, we had some residency programs ongoing, but these were not very well structured. And I remember as a medical student uh, seeing um, some of our uh, earlier residents spending about uh, seven to eight years in residency. Um, and this is, you know, it was more or less like carpentry. Uh, the master carpenter decides when to actually pass you. And especially if you're a very good carpenter, uh, he always wants to hold on to you. So, <laughs> so, so most of them ended up doing the work of the attendants whilst the attendants uh, run, uh, run their private practices in town. And uh, that actually uh, caused a lot of brain drain, uh, especially in my, in my class, because most people didn't want to go through that. So um, like I said earlier, um, we do not have a lot of specializations ongoing. And uh, for a, a subspecialty like nephrology, it's basically non-existent. Um, uh, nephrological uh, uh, conditions were taken care of uh, purely by the physician specialist which is almost equivalent to uh, the internet here in the United States. Um, um, like I was saying, um, 
renal medicine um, is very, very limited. We have very limited hemodialysis in uh, tertiary institutions uh, where the machines exist. I, I am in doubt even if it is used because uh, we have about, uh, uh, about 20 to, uh, 18 to 20 hours interruption of uh, electricity in the day. So it's virtually impossible to uh, you know, run things like hemodialysis. And where they exist, uh, they were mainly for acute hemodialysis for um, uh, situations of uh, AKIs. Um, chronic hemodialysis virtually is non-existent. And uh, it's the reserve for the rich and those who could afford. Um, currently, there are no transplant services in the country. Um, most people who want to uh, have se uh, such services would have to embark on medical tourism to South Africa and other parts of the world. Um, what are the prospects of uh, nephrology in uh, Ghana? It looks uh, very good. Uh, recently, there has been uh, the inception of a national um, health insurance scheme, uh, first of its kind in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so um, we um, uh, hope and anticipate that uh, with the inception of this scheme, government and uh, other stakeholders and NGOs uh, would be able to uh, support uh, the development of nephrology and um, acute and chronic uh, hemodialysis. Uh, we also need um, infrastructural development and especially uh, energy. Like I was saying, the uh, electricity uh, when you go to my country, um, the maximum uh, hours within the day that you could have electricity is um, about four to six hours. Uh, there's frequent interruptions. Um, government is working in, in that direction too. So I'll say um, the prospect is very good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's pretty amazing for a country where when it rains, you can find gold on the shore that people are struggling so much, and that's another part of the problem, right, is uh, resource or capital is, doesn't end up in the right hands. <laughs> I think uh, next is Marion Gall, who's going to give us a really uh, different view of Pakistan that I think most of us get from the news media. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Um, Right, so I'm Mariam Gold, one of the renal fellows, and I'm going to <clears throat> talk a little bit about the state of nephrology in Pakistan. As you probably, uh, most of us, you, know, you probably know, uh, located in South, um, South Asia, uh, bordered uh, by <coughs> India and Afghanistan, Iran, and this is the Arabian Sea coast. Uh, it's the sixth most populous country in the world, 189 million population as of 2014. Um, the health expenditure per capita is about 2% of the GDP. Uh, it's a very great difference in rural versus the urban population. Big uh, wide gap in the socioeconomic extremes. Uh, the health system is basically divided into three parts. Uh, it's public system, employees, social security, and then private health provision. The medical education in Pakistan uh, is actually pretty good. I would say about 98 medical colleges and schools in the whole country. 40% of them are public and 58 are private. Uh, the years of establishment are uh, have a very wide range. They go all the way back to the British era, starting uh, from 1860 up till now. 
each graduating batch has about 50% uh, in proportion males and females. It's actually changing now to 60% females and 40% males. Uh, public medical schools uh, educational five years cost about $1,500 for all five years. This is the institution fee. Uh, private schools are not um, supposed to have as good as training as public, uh, but you have to pay more to get uh, enrolled to a medic private medical school, and uh, you have to pay about a maximum of ten to maybe twelve thousand uh, dollars. Careers after medicine: so five years of medical school after twelve um, years, total twelve years of school. After that, you have to do one year of house job or internship to get certified with the Pakistan Medical and Dental Council. Uh, I would say, looking at my own batch of uh, about 175 medical students in my graduating batch, 30% uh, have already pursued or in trying to pursue their careers in the US, UK, and Australia. Uh, the nephrology training in Pakistan is actually limited to major tertiary center, uh, mostly in the public center. Uh, as I mentioned before, the public schools, the public medical schools provide much better training than the private. The training quality is very good as far as like diagnosing and theoretically dealing with various renal pathologies. Um, but uh, many cases, unfortunately, because of the lack of actual trained nephrologists, uh, they are managed by urologists. Uh, so once they get referred to them, they just keep on following. Uh, it's uh, basic reasons I would say our lack of um, uh, education in the general public. And also on, on the top, on what becomes of the practice as well, we keep on managing them. Uh, the career opportunities are limited um, after training uh, because the system is not based on merit. Uh, I guess uh, Nick also mentioned some of that, uh, and it's somewhat similar uh, in our country. Uh, we still follow a British system uh, that you have to, like, after you graduate, there's a house officer, then senior house officer, registrar. And then four years of residency training. After that, you become assistant professor and then uh, professor. So the professors and the assistant professors who have been in the field for about uh, 15, 20 years or so, they won't let you uh, like come up to their level unless like they die or. <laughs> but then you have to wait. You have to be lucky, or you have to uh, maybe have a very strong family. Uh, you know relationship or connection or you have to be really, really excellent uh, to actually get there. So it's not the natural level of proportion that you get, uh, promotions that you get that you five years of residency and then you go there and next business level. So it's, 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 it's very variable. Uh, this is just a picture of the, my medical college. It is affi affiliated with the Jinnah Hospital. Uh, it's an 1100 bed tertiary hospital. We have many similar hospitals in the whole country. This is just an example. Uh, of a good tertiary hospital, and we provide all specialties and subspecialties. Uh, transplants, I would say, are, have recently started in the last one year. Um, this is just to give an uh, idea of the main, main causes of renal failure in Pakistan. Uh, they're very hot summers, so all, um, all ages you see dehydration, volume depletion leading to AKIs very frequently. Uh, then we have strep infections in the younger age, post endocarditis care, and then uh, because of lack of preventive antibiotics and uh, lack of preventive care, complicated untreated UTIs. Then in adults, we have hypertension, diabetes. Uh, hep C is very, very common. Um, and use of heavy metal leading to nephrotoxicity. 
used by traditional healers and quacks is another very important, um, I would say, cause of renal failure over there. Um, many, many patients in the rural areas, they, uh, they, they keep getting managed by quacks and traditional healers until they are already in ESRD and then they show up in a tertiary care hospital when there's unfortunately not much to do after that. Uh, major CKD is because of repeated AKIs, diabetes, and set abuse, and as I mentioned that. Uh, then AKI is about 2 to 2.6%. Um, this is an example of, this is the same hospital, Jana Dialysis Center, uh, which is uh, reflective, I would say, it would reflect the major state in the most of the tertiary care hospitals. Uh, the tertiary care public hospitals are supposed to provide free of cost care. Um, the Janata Dialysis Center has currently 12 machines uh, and they are adding, I was recently informed by one of my colleagues over there, they are adding 12 uh, more machines um, currently. We currently have 1,200 patients in the waiting list. <coughs> the waiting list is basically for pain, uh, patients requiring maintenance HD. It's, it takes about two to three years to have a chronic dialysis spot, and if you're lucky, you can get, in, or, or if you can afford, you can get enrolled into the multiple private uh, dialysis units uh, if you can afford that. Uh, most patients with API, they improve, but patients uh, do not always recover. It's like they're discharged after four to five sessions, uh, which they can get in the uh, public <coughs> hospital, and after that, it's their fate, and it's their... Uh, affordability that they can on, keep on having the sessions or not. Uh, this is uh, an example of one of my colleagues from there. He presented a paper in ASN as, uh, actually, and this is uh, about a fate of 123 patients um, who were started on hemodialysis. These were ESRD patients secondary to diabetic nephropathy. 13 were alive after one year, one had renal transplant, one was on PD, and the remaining were just on suboptimal HD twice weekly. Uh, this is a very good uh, model for dialysis and transplant. This is in Karachi, which is the largest uh, city in the um, country, and uh, they provide free kidney transplants, uh, but of course there's a long waiting list. This is all run by donations and charity by the people of Pakistan, and people who are Pakistanis but have come abroad. Um, about 600 patients per day, they receive dialysis, and 10 to 12 transplants are performed per week. This is very, very... Um, like, I would say, reassuring, and it's, it's a good um, uh, way of, uh, like, it, it's one good thing, thing that people have kind of established when government is not doing enough for them. Um, and I think this picture she speaks for itself, and um, she's Malala, she was the youngest uh, Peace Nobel laureate, um, worked for female education, and uh, gives us all hope. Thank you. I want to thank all the, the speakers. There's actually one. I hope we can do this. Uh, Fred, are they still online? Uh, they were about 30 seconds ago. Okay, we'll get them on. So, so um, why don't, uh, we're, we're trying to get the, the, the team from Hopital uh, University of Mirabalay online. Um, um, uh, Marilyn was going to just say a few words. I mean, she's uh, faced with patients with AKI every day, and they're set to go, and we're hoping to... Uh, to, to do the first uh, dialysis in the next, in, I think in the next month or so. In the meantime, maybe if the fellows, if you want to come up, maybe there's some questions. Um, do you guys want to come up and then if there's some questions? Why don't we do that and then if Katie comes online, we'll just interrupt that for a second. Question for Dr. Castro, what accounts for the um, good results in Cuba? I don't know. 
Uh, I don't know the health system. Uh, I know they focus a lot on prevention. I know they, even though they are in the Caribbean and everything, they have very low rates of dengue fever and other transmittable diseases. Uh, they have also very large, uh, uh, very large um, sugarcane fields. Uh, so that, that's not the difference. Uh, the, the altitude is not different. I don't know about pesticides. I'm not saying that that's the cause of the of the Mesoamerican necropathy, but I do not know what, what they do to, to prevent ancestral disease or chronic kidney disease. Uh, so I just wanted to say that um, these three physicians who really are remarkable, have done such a remarkable job in our fellowship program, are representative of the fellows we've had over the years since our program started from many nations around the world and we're incredibly grateful to them for their hard work and their sincerity, um, their enthusiasm about nephrology and their dedication to their own countries as well as to our countries. So I think we owe them a round of thanks. technology video and we brought um, what we try and do is once and every other month we alternate we try and basically have uh, our group present a case to to Haiti and th they discuss the case and then they present an unknown case to us and uh, you know we've had a lot of technical issues and we've worked it, it, things have evolved they can actually link into every conference room at DHMC from an iPad so actually it was really <coughs> robust yesterday and normally um, HUM has a great signal because they have a fiber optic cable so that's been a real a real uh, blessing but the um, so, so the things that we've seen are we've seen tuberculous meningitis presented by them. Some they've seen cases where we've overutilized every CT scan, MRI, and they would have just treated and they had the right answer from the beginning. So, um, so it's been a, an eye-opening thing. Yeah. Ah, Marilyn, Marilyn. Yes. Can you hear? Yes. So, this morning. that's okay. Uh, we can see you. We, we have to see you better. We can only see. Okay, okay, Marilyn. Do you want to just say a few words about the about the to the audience? Everyone's uh, everyone can see you on the big screen. Go ahead. Yes, but um, yeah, we lose the conference. Uh, that's okay. We we can send you the link so you can watch it again. But just uh, could you just say a few words about what we hope to do in the next month in terms of dialysis with acute acute kidney failure? Okay, no problem. Um, but yes, I've I've um, looked for the for what you said, but we, we could see the slides, but um, without the could hear um, the sounds. But um, as you said, uh, 
Cambodia, we, we have more than 50% of uh, the population with hypertension and uh, uh, high incidence of diabetes who are the most important fact risk factors for um, renal failure. Though uh, we, even though I don't have any numbers, we uh, often face situations where patients with um, acute kidney injury who need uh, acute dialysis cannot find it because of the lack of materials and uh, the and because also uh, with the cost of dialysis, the patients often cannot pay the dialysis. Though those patients unfortunately dies for complication of acute kidney injury. And um, as uh, I experimented um, personally a case of, of a patient uh, like 20, 22 year old who had a crush injury and who needed um, acute dialysis, he could not find it and uh, he was sent to Potterpens to be dialysed and uh, it was not possible before he can reach the hospital, he dies. So, um, the next step for us in HUM uh, will be the management of such patients with acute dialysis and uh, with the training we we've, um, received um, so far, we are ready to start with acute dialysis if we have um, such patients. And uh, at, with the long term, we uh, hope to be able to do renal transplant as we are, um, we do plan for, for, for transplant. So, um, it's uh, our hope we would like to start with the renal transplant and uh, try to save some patients with acute and uh, chronic kidney so there there are five residents at home who are in internal medicine service. Um, we actually were working with Google Glass, but even with an iPad, we run in our dialysis units all the time uh, with iPads. So, so we, we can just round at home. I said, I, one of the things uh, Marilyn, I want to try and do is be virtual attending. Go around and see the 36 patients and provide them with information. I think there's a ton of things you can do with the technology. Um, I think the business of bringing people here, I'd love to see us look at our five. Supposedly, you can have 25% of people who don't finish the three years, but just come here um, for specialty training. They can't sit for the boards, but that's not the point. But maybe if we actually structured it so they could go back we could actually, we did that across the United States. So we're actually going to the ASN and asking that the ASN and people dedicate 5% of their slots to training international medical graduates from around the world. And, and uh, I'd love to be able to bring someone like Marilyn here for a year and have her train intense. It's very hard to do this with just two week or one week uh, visit. So um, anyway, uh, I think this, uh, we had technological problems and you know, we always do, but, but you gotta wait and then in some ways that's perfect. And you got to see um, this at the end. Um, but I want to thank everybody this morning. There are the best people going. I'll push in, okay? <laughs> <laughs>